It's Bantertown Central. Mm. As opposed to Bantertown East. And we're back! <laughs> Welcome to Talk About That. I am uh, here with my friend Johnny. Hey. I'm John. And uh, if you didn't know that already, then you should really go back and listen to previous episodes. No, this is fine. Start is where fine. you're at. You're right. It's... Just be where you're at. Be present. Well, wherever you go, that's where you're at. That's not what it says. I don't think it ends on a preposition like that. <laughs> Aren't you an English major? Yeah, I was just teasing. There, everywhere you go, there you are. But I was going to let you. You know, the, the the thing is, I often will overwrite something yeah. so that we don't end on a preposition, and it sounds so much pr- more yeah. pretentious when you do it. Yes. So wherever you, you go, you should be able to end. That is the place at which you are. Like you know, what I'm saying, like yeah. you're going to be really particular about it. So I try not. Sometimes I will intentionally. Use there is bad a death grammar. of language that's happening, but also I think sometimes people are really uptight about English rules when we just need to be more. We need to be clear about what we're saying rather than correct. We, we sacrifice yeah. clarity sometimes so that we look smarter than we really are. I don't know if it's about looking smarter. I think it's about being smarter. I saw a job posting, yeah. by the way, and it said, "It said, uh, don't apply if you a needs." This was on LinkedIn. Don't apply unless a you, or if you don't like working in teams. If b you have to be babysat, or mm. c if you are not smart. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say like the third option was a three. <laughs> A, B, or three, if you don't work hard. <laughs> it was so f- – I mean, really, uh, I almost quit my job and went and applied just because they made me laugh. So yeah. That's a lie. I don't don't apply. But everybody thinks they're smart, right? That's kind of the deal. Mm. Nobody – I mean, everybody's thought they're dumb before. Everybody has that dumb moment in traffic where you're the guy that cut the person off or you, you feel stupid because you didn't know a trivia question or whatever. But generally speaking, we get through life by having a feeling of – well, at least I'm not that guy, or there's right. a feeling of superiority that most of us share. Like people of Walmart. You seen that website? Uh, were the pictures of the – yes. So it's like we all go to Walmart. We, we're so glad Walmart's there. It's 3 in the morning. We got to go to Walmart. And yet we think that we're not the people of Walmart. Even though we're there at 3 in the morning. We're looking at the woman who's wearing a shirt that's too small for her or whatever, and we're, oh, my gosh, where does she – do these people even have mirrors? And we're laughing. It's so dumb because it's like we're all the people of Walmart, yep. but we don't think we are. Wow, I really that's that's profound. There's a, there's a theology, man. You know, and <clears throat> my buddy will be listening to this, but I will tell you what one of my friends said to me the other day. We were talking about some biblical issue, and I had just happened to read a book and some other things about some of that, and I made like this ten minute kind of, uh, I guess, argument, if you will, and. His response—it was obvious. Like, okay, that was a that was a satisfying answer. They're not always they're not always satisfying answers, Joey. No. But I had some like theories, and and he looked at me and he said, "You know, I bet someone out there would have a really good argument against that." Mm. <laughs> and we both kind of started laughing. I go, "Do you have any idea what you just said?" <laughs> like, All we're right. just at the place in life, to your point, where we literally put faith in. In the fact that someone else is going to know something, even if we're not willing to find out what it was, yeah, and, he, and he didn't mean to say it like that. Like he, yeah. he was like, "Well, you know what I'm saying." I bet, and I think it's exactly how we feel. Like, well, you know what, Johnny, I'm pretty smart, and I put my, you know how I, I know I'm smart. I put my faith in the fact that there are people smarter than me who are saying things that I don't have to figure out because they're figuring it out. You know. Well, that's basically Twitter. You can just wait for a snarky response from somebody about an issue and then just retweet it, and it's like. I, too, am brilliant like you, or you just wait for the takedown. Twitter's interesting because it, it's unlike Facebook in that it feels like this alternate universe uh, where snarkiness just thrives, and the opinions are so uh, polarizing, but it's not the real world at all. Not at all. Um, you, it, But it can feel like it sometimes, and when you go chasing the, I don't know, people to like you there, it's just an odd place, but... I don't, I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying it's – I recognize that it's not real. Right. You – by the way, speaking of, oh. you you retweeted something that I also retweeted uh, and it was a C.S. Lewis quote. Right. 
and it was, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives with the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment, C.S. Lewis. And the guy who tweeted it said, yes, hell and Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I was like, it is like an oddly accurate description of what social media – and we're not social media bashers. We live in that world too. Although I did have somebody also tell me the other day uh, that our generation takes social media more seriously than the younger generations. We get all upset about it and the rest of them are like, yeah, it's just for fun kind of thing, which I don't believe because I see them get more upset. I – have seen feuds among yeah. friends because someone unfriended because someone like, you know, yeah, it's like you can't have it both ways. Comedians are that way that work dirty. They look at somebody who works clean like I do, be it for, you know, my Christian faith or whatever. Like I, I would probably work clean other, no matter what, because I was grew up watching Brian Regan and right. And those guys Seinfeld and that worked clean. And I liked that. I like that style of comedy. It's more challenging, but all that said, I definitely work clean and I have reasons. I like families to come to my shows. I like not have to have kids' ears covered. But the dirty comics that I know sometimes will be like, well, I'm coloring with all the crayons in the box. And it's just words. And you're like, you're taking away. My- These words don't matter. It's like, if they don't matter, then why can't I lift them out of your show? Right. And your show would still be funny. And I'm not saying that there aren't dirty comics who are brilliant. There clearly are. There are some amazing comics who, who use vulgar language that I wouldn't use on stage, but that does not mean they're not funny. Probably, but, no, though, the ones who are brilliant would not say such a thing to you. Right. They wouldn't. They, wouldn't they would be understand so comedy as a holistic yeah, They wouldn't be so defensive yeah. about it. Right. In fact, if you ask – to a man, if you ask any comedian who their top ten is, Brian Regan is always in the top five of every yeah. comedian, dirty or clean, yeah. because he's a wizard on stage with words. He's just amazing. But all that said, I do think it's interesting that we act like this generation and my generation, uh, and definitely the ones following, they're trying to minimize the importance of words so that they can get away with saying what they want to say. But the reason you say an F-bomb is because it has power. Right. You can't pretend that it doesn't have power. That's why you use it. Right. And so when you say, oh, it doesn't matter, it's like people that did that with the N-word. We're going to take the power away. It's like this word is a horrible word. Right. It has power. You can't diffuse it. And sure. so it's like – I don't know. I think um, I think it's worth asking the question like what words are we using and why are we using them? But to act like it doesn't matter, that doesn't that doesn't do anything for me. It's just well, a, I mean, you know, uh, we talked about before in the podcast. I do believe that words are just words in terms of, you know, with my daughter – I'm not on a mission to get her to <gasps> every time she hears a cuss word right. and think that that's the definition yeah. of unwholesome language from sure. the Bible. Because yeah, yeah. I, it, it, some of that may be included in that definition. Yeah. But in fact, I bet you I won't be invited back to my kid's school to speak at chapel. She goes to Christian school. <laughs> I may or may not, Johnny, have told all the kids. Oh, no. Um, I, I didn't – I was thinking I was careful. I just said, listen – it's the very end of my little talk. <laughs> I took my guitar and just played just to do something that they'd be entertained by. Oh, my gosh. But, um, You're that guy? You broke out the acoustic and played Wonderwall? What did you do? <laughs> hey, guys. Here's a little tune by a band called Oasis. You're going to love them. No, I think all I literally do is get a couple kids up to like one did a woo and one did a clap. And like I just try to get like some circular thing going. I mean, there were kindergartners in there. Yeah. Like it was it, it was brutal. What did you say? You say the word crap? No, I just said, you know, Sadie and I talk about the fact that that what a cuss word is is it's a cursing. Like that's where the word came from. Yeah. And that you don't have to be using quote unquote cuss words to be cursing somebody. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of us are cursing people around us without using cuss words. And that's really what scripture means when it talks about edifying one another and not tearing one another down because the words we're using in English today didn't exist when Paul was writing. What he's saying is – so we've kind of made a thing out of the cuss words and and yes, that can be. But then we'll turn around and just gossip or backbite and pull someone down. And I think in God's eyes that that may be worse. Like it's – what's the intent of it? So the important thing is that we're lifting one another up and – yeah, so, I don't think that cursing is uh, as big of a deal as uh, maybe my parents would have or my grandparents certainly would have. So it's definitely – I have a, a more lax view of it in that if I see somebody who uses foul language, 
I don't immediately think well, this person's clearly not even a believer in Christ because right. they would be com- they would p- completely regenerate in what they're saying. This is total. Right. I don't believe that anymore. But I will say that I just subscribe more to it as, um, like I think it was Chesterton who said, uh, foul language is not a sin against God; it's a sin against civilized society. Yeah. There's something to be said for like we all know the trendy pastor who wants to be trendy and so he curses in his sermon. Right. We see that and then you just to me it just makes me roll my eyes cuz it's like it's like trying to be the cool dad. Yep. Uh and so it's just like it doesn't ring it doesn't ring true to me. By the way, uh, I take a little offense at the whole cool dad comment. <laughs> well, you did break out an acoustic at the kindergartners <laughs> thing. That's definitely cool dad territory. Well, I had kindergarten through fifth. Hey guys. <laughs> You guys ever seen one of these before? I wore a hairpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to help. No, I again. Throw out candy. I have. Uh, I mean, my, I think my views on language are still forming because that's my job, and it's my. So I don't think I've made it, but even made up my mind about it. But I will say that someone who acts like they have true freedom, and that they think that that freedom means I can say whatever I want when I want, what they're doing is they're really being bound. By the idea that they want to look free, they want to look cool, right? And they're not necessarily free because, and also there is a weird thing of like when you compartmentalize too. Like if you do have two personality, well, I can't use this language in church, but I can use it with my friends. Yeah. So there is that. There's a danger of that becoming two people. I got to be this professional Christian over here. You know, we see we know ministers who have a, a different lexicon off stage than on. And it can devolve into something. So there is a, a way that it can get it can get bad. Well, you know, the world that we grew up in, um, there was always a – I won't say his name or anything, but, you know, he's passed away now. But there was like a leader. A, a Billy regional, Graham. A regional leader. Guys, I'm not going to say his name. <laughs> <laughs> it rhymes with – It's funny. Billy Graham cusses like Willie a sailor. Billy Graham. It rhymes <laughs> with – was not Billy Graham. No. But, you know, he would be very – He'd be known in meetings and stuff when he's quote unquote getting with it with somebody or correcting yeah. like to just drop a bunch of cuss words. Right. And everybody would laugh like it was a it was a disarming yeah kind of thing. And he would never say that if he was from the stage. And I'm kind of with you on that. There, there's certainly an awareness of your surroundings. I will speak differently, not necessarily in in a in the cuss word world, but you know there are going to be meetings I go to other things where I'm yeah. going to be more mindful of the words I'm choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't want to be a different person. That's something I told my wife the other night. You know, I think a lot of the change in my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of uh, you know what real grace is about and real truth is about, and I'm like you said, I'm still a big work in progress there. But a lot of that has caused me to feel that the guy I am when I have a microphone in my hand is not much different than the guy I am when I'm watching Netflix at home with my yeah. wife. Because, you know, learning the – that I, you know, and I was never like duplicitous I think with things. I've always been pretty honest on the stage and things like that. But I don't feel like that – you know, especially when you're speaking out of your weakness, I don't feel some need to, to hide that as much. Yeah. And not just – in the old days, I'd speak out of my weakness on certain very specific things because I didn't know – I didn't really acknowledge. I wouldn't have talked about necessarily my insecurity on the same level that I will now. Because that would, in my mind, keep them from hearing the message. Because yeah. they're gonna, they're gonna now have, they're gonna lose faith in the person who's speaking if he doesn't appear to have it together. That that was what real ministry was about. You need to, you know, present yourself well. And absolutely, there is a place for that. But I was watering on the gospel the opposite way, you know, because the real truth is, if I could have been honest to say, guys, I, I feel like I have no business being up here today, <laughs> you know, but not just that. Mm-hmm. adding to it then, but let me tell you what the implications are then in my relationship with Jesus and how I'm trusting in him outside of what I feel I'm trusting in him. And it, and it's just, uh, it's caused me to, to, to believe very clearly that I, th- I don't want to be two different people. I don't, I don't want to yeah. have one pers- persona in one place and another in another. Yeah. That's kind of similar to comedy in both facets. Like you call it like your voice on stage. Right. They say it takes 10 years to find your voice and what that, Usually means is that the person you are off stage becomes the prism through which you view uh, and through which you speak about an issue on stage, instead of 
well, I better get up there and play the role of a comedian. What would a comedian say about this? You're not doing an impression of a comedian anymore. You're just really running it through your own prism and you're really being yourself. Now there are character comedians, but those I'm using that as a very 95% of comedians are trying to be the same off stage and, and on stage. Um, and as far as like talking about your weakness, like that was my total journey in comedy. Like the first few years were about deflecting my jokes were like a shield. Um, it's almost like the fat kid in the lunchroom who's going to call himself fat before you get a chance to. Yeah. Um, I'll point out the zit on my forehead before you get a chance to make your own joke about it at the rap battle or whatever. It's that kind of deflection. Right. And now it's, it's the opposite. It's what embarrassing, awful, insecure things can I mine from my life uh, for the stage because you start realizing like it makes people feel less alone. Mm-hmm. And that's what – that's the real – that's when you really have something. It's when you can make somebody laugh and feel less alone and feel connected. You can connect a room of strangers mm-hmm. and that's really magical. And so I think sermons are similar in that way. You're, it's a connection you're trying to reach and and obviously you have a greater goal. But it's the same pursuit in the beginning is which is trying to make people feel like – not like the person up there is this superhero that I could never attain whatever but – Oh, this guy yelled at his wife once. Okay, well then I'll listen. You know, sure. now it's, it humanizes. So you need no. to stop yelling at your wife. Well, I'm glad you brought it up because this, this is a good chance to. Uh, yeah. So, uh, by the way, I don't. You and I are not huge hockey fans. We're not. No. But I do like it. I follow it. Uh, I follow loosely. It. I follow it. And then the playoffs come, and then and the Preds we, are good, right? Preds are really good. Preds are good. Preds are good. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's game seven before, and if they win this game, then they go to the, uh, it's the most conference Nashville, finals. It's the most Nashville thing ever because we forced a game seven by winning game six uh, in, where are we playing? At San, San Jose winning, Sharks? Winning no, Winnipeg uh, Winni- Jets. Netta- so we win in Winnipeg game six. Denver. Now, normally we would play game seven two days later. It's a three-day layoff, three full days. And this is the most natural thing ever because game seven is here in Bridgetown, and there's a Justin Timberlake concert. <laughs> so we get an extra day of rest because JT is here. That's so amazing. It is very it is very. Uh, so Winnipeg's like, really? <laughs> you get to like. Dude, it's so true. I Matt, mean, both teams probably need rest, but it is interesting. It is hard. The peer pressure to like hockey now if you're a Nashvillian yeah. is, and I like it. I do. I'll watch. I, I wonder how many people are like me. Like I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan, but what I do and is. I never hear you talk about the Cardinals. I have, a, I have the Bleacher Report app and I keep up with whether they win or lose. Cause there's a game every day yeah. of the year. Sometimes you get two. like trade rumor. I don't get into the, I will look at it's it. so funny, man. But like, I want to too long and we get to the playoffs. I may watch, but here's what I'm learning. Like all of the people who really like the Cardinals, yeah. that's exactly what they do too. Nobody actually <laughs> watches baseball throughout the regular season. So I follow they this, check the scores right. and they I see the highlights. This, I follow this guy, Aaron tuning. Who's uh he actually was a huge vine star back before vine went belly up. He had millions and millions of uh, revines or whatever you call that. And he's a YouTube guy. He's been in a bunch of John Christ's videos. You've probably seen him on those. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we're friends on Twitter, and he posted the other day his ticket to a Braves game. He's a big Braves fan. He grew up in Atlanta. And I think he's involved with their organization. He does, like, man-on-the-street kind of things for them and some yeah. marketing for them uh, and part of their video team. So he gets these tickets, but he got tickets to their game the other day, and he said, I can't wait to get to my seat for tonight's game. It was an SRO ticket, which is standing room only. And uh, I'll tell you a minute why I know that. So, but it said it's standing around on the ticket, and I, I tweeted it back and said, "You just answered the question. What's the only thing more worthless than a regular season baseball game? <laughs> I mean, if there's anything more worthless, it's standing up for one. Can you imagine standing up for a four-hour oh baseball game? I like I, I like attending a baseball game." But you I get like a hot it. dog. It's right. about the food. It's about the food, man. It's hot though. And maybe maybe seeing a kid catch a foul ball or maybe seeing another person get hit in the head. I'm just kidding. I don't like to see that. But <laughs> it is an amazing sport to me that a, a very dangerous ball yeah. is just flying at dangerous speeds. They're adding nets and things though because bats are hitting people. Into the crowd like, yeah. you know, you know. But I mean like going to a hockey game and not having the the shield, you know, the Pucks flying to the audience there too though. Well. 
That puck is. Have you ever have you ever held a hockey puck? I have. I held one Tim Tim Hawkins podcast because somebody gave him some pucks. He started playing hockey now. Sure he did. And uh, so people give him gifts because that's what happens when you have enough money to afford your own hockey pucks. Where the heck is Tim Hawkins going to play? If you're hockey? famous, people just give you hockey pucks. He Are played, they? It's St. Louis, so they have they have right, you know, ice but, rinks and things, and he plays. But he just bought a bunch of equipment. And he bought a bunch started... of equipment and just started going to like pick. There's pickup games of hockey. <laughs> that you, play. you just walk up. Got next. And I mean, just... like, do you even know positions? And oh, I don't. He's you're... learning about it. Oh my yeah. gosh. It's but he's he's. The, the, I've heard from Caleb the stuff that he has to wear. He wears like this super shielded uh, mask because obviously he can't take a puck to the grill. Like some of these guys, because he's you know he's working for a living, he's got ten people on the payroll. But it is interesting. Uh, I think that's funny. That whole thing's funny too. Like when Tim goes skiing, they go they take ski skiing trips with their family in their off season, and he never takes like anything above like a bunny hill or whatever because he can't risk it. Wow, he can't go down a black diamond. He's a good skier, I think. He just can't. Dude, I go straight down the black diamond. Do I you have nothing? <laughs> okay, so SRO. I got a family. I didn't tell you my SRO story. Okay, so the first Laker game I ever went to. Uh, we drove to Atlanta. We're going to see him play at the Hawks. This is when Phillips Arena was new, so it was really one of the newer arenas. So I've been a Laker fan my whole life. This is when they had Shaq and Kobe. And I assume by him you meant Kobe. Huh? You said I'm going to go see him play. See, I thought I said them. But anyway, I'm going to see the Lakers play. So it's Shaq, Kobe, it's an amazing team. I think we were coming off a championship year already. Uh, it's like 2000, 2001. So we drive to Atlanta, me and my buddy Brent. And we're just going to go buy tickets. Like I just thought... You didn't go with tickets. You, we didn't. I just thought we'll go to the box office and oh, buy tickets. Sorry. I was dumb. I know where this is going. And so, of course, she was like, um, it's the Lakers. Like, you know, it's the Lakers. <laughs> Even when they're bad, they sell out, you know. Right. People come. They have huge fan bases all over the world. So it's like, oh, no, what do we do? We've driven to Atlanta from Knoxville. And so we literally end up, like, scalping tickets on the street, buying tickets from a scalper. And then this guy's, like, full on whatever. He's like, hey. I'll give you these for the he have tickets for thirty five, forty dollars each. I was like, whatever. They were I look at the face value of the tickets at ten dollars. I was like, well, this is just part of the deal. It's a markup of it. I was like, what section is this? He's like, it's that you're in there. And I didn't I didn't see it. I was just like, okay. I saw that it had an S on it. <laughs> we get in there, sure enough, we hand it to the guy. He goes, Oh no, you're up there. And we were we could touch the rafter. We were in standing room only section. Where it said SRO. I was like, Oh, what's SRO? Ooh. Take me to the luxury box. <laughs> Must be some really cool. But no, we were standing. Wow. We could touch the top of the rafters. Shaq was the size of a dime. You know, the first NBA game I ever went to, I've only been to two. Yeah. The first one I went to was standing room only, and I watched Jordan play. And he was 42. Oh, it was the Wizards. No, so, he was back. back. Okay, who was he? What number was he when he came back before he went to 23 again? He, he came, was 45, but he wasn't 40. Oh, 45, mean, 45. I thought you meant he was 42 years old. No, 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 no. His number. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, when was Jordan 42? <laughs> no, when he was, when he, so we were on a school trip to Chicago. He was 45, yeah. It was, and he was yeah. 45. So he had just come back and he barely even got in the game. And we stood standing room only. You can like barely see Jordan. He got in for like a couple of minutes. because he was just You coming, were at that game. He was just coming back, yeah. From so. baseball. Yep. Wow. NBA playoffs are happening too, by the way. Speaking of segue, oh my gosh, it's such a great time. You're to be a, a big fan. NBA fan. I am. I just think that people that hate on the NBA are, aren't paying attention, man. I just don't like it. And I get like people people that want to do the college argument. And I know you like it, the NCAA, I and I love the tourney. I'm a big NCAA, guy. but I just think these people who are like they do it for the love of the game. These kids are all trying to get contracts. They're all they all want to make their situation better. This idea that nobody's chasing money in the college game. It's so bad. Half of them are getting paid already. Well, I don't think that they're. I don't think the reason the college game seems more pure is because they're not chasing money. It's because they haven't gotten it yet, and the guys in the NBA have. So it's it, it's it's more passionate. I just of, think that the NBA has the best players of all the best college teams, though. That's the thing. Is like well, sure you're it playing. It's the best of the best. So I do feel be like there are product. times. I do feel like there are times if and when I watch an NBA game, many many times in the game, that I just see the lane clear out and a guy go in for a wide open dunk. And yeah. like nobody tried to take a charge or stood in front. Like, if that was a college game, Rick Barnes would pull you out and sit you on the bench for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, in regular season, same thing. It's too long of a season. Whereas in college games, you have you know you have thirty games or whatever to to make hay. And so in the in the pro game, it's like eighty two games. 
So, yeah, there's definitely a, a season within the season where you are relaxing until the fourth quarter sometimes, or you see teams playing lax defense. But once the playoffs start, like, I just think, I don't think, I think the product's unbelievable and it's a great time to be a fan. If you're just a fan and you're not a fan of an individual team, it's the perfect time to be an NBA fan because it's, there's so many great players and, uh, in their primes playing. I mean, LeBron's in his 15th year and he's playing better basketball than Man, he ever has. I will say this I saw some highlights of LeBron against the Raptors. Yeah. I mean, regardless of how you feel with the NBA, like, his dominance is on a whole other level. It's crazy. I mean, and what is he average thirty four points? I think yeah, in the I think he yeah. It's basically short, just short of a triple double, if not a triple double. And he's uh, everybody around him is better. It's just, it's fifteen years. And you're talking about fifteen years. The miles on those legs. He plays eighty two game season. Then he plays into the summer every year because he's been to eight straight finals. He plays for the Olympic teams. I mean, this guy plays. A hundred plus games a year. I was watching something on ESPN the other day where he his workout before the practice. Yeah, which he would was kill like, you. Yeah, he's on an exercise ball. I don't know. He was like doing crunches with a Volkswagen on yeah. his chest. He's or doing P ninety X before the game starts to warm up. I'll be like, I'm done. Uh, yeah, I think they said that he spends uh, two or three million dollars a year just in nutrition and equipment and his body, just keeping his body right. Bro. If I were to spend two million dollars a year in nutrition, that's what I keep that's thinking. what separates me. Once again, it's, it's if I just had two million dollars to spend on my body, it's the ice baths. I won't do it for that. Yeah, they're just too cold. And then if I just had a little a more, hyperbaric chamber, yeah, I'm just missing all those things. That's all that separates me. I just have like a regular barrack chamber. <laughs> it's a barracks, really. Right, it's not it's a military barracks. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> we call it my barrack chamber. It's my barrack chamber. Yeah, and um, that's the thing. Like. You know, in who was the first athlete to start doing that? Lance Armstrong. He would sleep in a hyperbaric chamber because it would help him with the Swiss. You mean Alps. the guy who played the trumpet? Yes. Are you supposed to go? That's Louis Armstrong. No, that's, that's I'm like, like, oh, you mean the guy, the guy who, who was the first to... on the moon? Yeah. No, that's well, you used to do that all the time, and you don't. Neil, Neil Armstrong. <laughs> no, Neil Armstrong's the guy that's real stretchy, and no, you <laughs> <laughs> could pull his arms right off. No, it's Stretch Armstrong. <laughs> anyway. I could go forever. <laughs> no, but anyway, uh, Lance Armstrong, they would let him sleep in these hyperbaric chambers. That was I don't think that was performance enhancing to them. Then when they found out he was blood doping. Right. Turns out while he was sleeping there, he was also, he was also taking getting, drugs. Yeah, right. taking a lot of drugs. That's a, that is still a tragic sure. story to me because the guy had overcome cancer and all these things. Just the fact that it was all like a ruse. The thing that bothered me the most. I mean, he still had to get on the bike. I'm not acting like Yeah, that. he still had to do And everybody was doping around them too probably. So that's the thing is like, do you believe – like in the in steroid era of baseball. But were they though? Because this that was when we were exposing the steroid era of baseball. Everyone knew not Everybody to do on this. his team was doing it. So why weren't they passing him? So he was the best of the dopers. So they were Just all like Barry Bonds it. was the best of the steroid guys or Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa. I heard something Mark McGuire said he could have hit that many home runs without yeah, scoring yeah. the other day. It's like really? Well, yeah. that's that's a convenient that's say. a convenient hypothesis to make today. But the thing that bothered me about Lance, uh, I knew that it was going to come out that he had doped. Like towards the end, you just knew. Okay, he's getting ready to have to admit this. But what I thought happened was he was clean, and then he got diagnosed with cancer, and then he used HGH to come back from the cancer. Because it was so, you know, his body degenerated so bad. That was the original story, right? Well, no. He said he never used it at all. But I was hoping when it came out that it would be, well, when I came back, I had to do this to come back. And then I thought he was addicted to the, the substances and the, what it did for him. But he started out as an innocent thing of like, I've got to get my body back. And it wasn't that I'm gonna at all. Die. It wasn't that at all. He was doping well, that from was the a, word go. That was the Peyton Manning story. In fact, that's part of the th- – you know, this can cause cancer cells to thrive when you overuse these things. They can cause – So perhaps this is how he got cancer. Who knows? I'm not going to say that. That's that's really – I mean, You're a not a doctor. Right? I'm not even – You're not even close. No. <laughs> <laughs> I got my JED. <laughs> Dude, that JED talk thing. The JED talk. It's going to happen, guys. We really need to do something really, with that. That is a sure. JED. So, what were you, uh, you going to say about that? I'm not a doctor? What What happened? Oh, I don't know. I did say it. I, I don't, don't know. remember. But, you know, the LeBron thing, yeah. you were telling me uh, in terms of his not just influence on the sport. But right. He's coming back. To, when he came back to Cleveland, you, you've always told me that's yeah, when just, it really. Well, he moved, you know, he took, his, took my talents to South Beach and people just got all upset because it was a big spectacle. Right. 
And it definitely could have been handled better. And I was one of the ones who kind of was rooting for him to fail because I was like, this guy. But it's so interesting the loyalty we expect out of professional athletes who are just picked by this city. Right. And then he was there seven years and played with these awful teams, took one into the finals. And you just go, dude, the guy gave his heart and soul to this hometown. But it's like the minute he decides to go somewhere else to play. Like if you took another job at another church and we started burning your books (laughs) – Everything you ever said. Good luck finding any of them. Everything you ever said. Right, we'd have to find them first. Every, they're probably at your house under your basement on pallets. <laughs> we burned all his books they're and his sh- house at the same they're time. They're shrink-wrapped. Killed two No, birds. but it's like this idea that we all crave mobility. We've all switched jobs because it was a better situation. But when a pro athlete does it, it's like, what a traitor. Yeah. And so – there was a little bit too much on that, and so people were rooting against him. But when he did come back and he's like, I'm going to win one for the city, it's Cleveland who's just been without a championship for years at that point, years and decades and decades of just whatever. And when he did it, I just thought, I'm rooting for this guy. The letter he wrote to the city, yeah. it just put a lump in my throat. So I've been kind of on his bandwagon, but then I found this out about him. Uh, and he's not – he's kind of not the best in the media sometimes. He He – Brags on himself in social media sometimes. It's a little bit annoying. Okay, he, 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 he whines to the refs. I get it, but this dude in the community is legit. I read this that something like eleven or twelve hundred kids went to college because of LeBron. He gave them full ride scholarships. It's it was like four, first of all it was like four or five million dollars, and I was like it, it costs five million dollars to send eleven hundred kids to college. It does nowadays. That's crazy. But then I kept thinking, this is he's a real life Scott's Tots. Remember the office <laughs> Remember the Office episode? It's my favorite episode of the where office. Where Michael Scott had promised when he was a young executive. And it's like a, like a kindergarten I, class. When I get to be a big deal in this world, I'm gonna send all of you to college. And he guaranteed an entire class of children that he would send them all to college. If they would just stay in school. Which lets you know, which is so hilarious about his character. He believed that much in them, but more importantly, he really believed that much in himself. Yeah. That there's no, he says that on one of the things. I just figured there's no chance I wouldn't be a millionaire yeah. 12 years later. Wow. <laughs> it was the most uncomfortable. Yeah, that's if you really, have not, if you're a listener, you've never, seen, you've the Scott never Scott's, seen Scott Stott's episode of The Office. Yeah. It is the most awkward and uh, awkward feeling just watching it unfold. And it's, it's just, it's the best. He, he does not send them to college. Spoiler alert. <laughs> he stands up. He's, he comes in. Now, guys, I got bad news. I can't send you all to college. Oh, man, they're all freaking out. He's like, but you know what? I decided maybe I can do something. If you're going to go to college, you're going to all need a laptop. And like just for a second, sort of their shoulders lift. They're like, like laptop? Oh. You know, laptop. He goes, and you know what every laptop needs? <laughs> batteries. batteries. <laughs> He's got a suitcase full of laptop batteries. Yeah. God, that was the great. He ends up helping one kid pay for their books or something, I think, is what he does. Does he? Yeah, remember the kid at the end? He pays for her books. Oh, that's nice. But Scott's time. But LeBron did it for real, and people want to hate on this dude. I'm just like, and and I hate when people do this too with rich people. They're like, uh, that's like changing his cushions. LeBron's got four million. Right. You know, a game. In the trunk of his, yeah, whatever. And I don't know. I just think. He did a he did a great thing. He could have been selfish with all his money. It's like when Kevin Durant donated a million dollars to the uh, the tornado relief when he was in Oklahoma City. He had these terrible tornadoes, and uh, he donated money. He was like, ah, it's nothing. It's like, no, it's not nothing. It's a million dollars. I get that maybe it didn't hurt him to do that financially or whatever. But this idea that it's not this, I don't know. I think that there's there's got to be a balance between. Like it's class warfare sometimes where we want to just think all rich people are evil and all poor people are good right. because they're good poor people. And then – but I understand that wealth corrupts if we're not careful and there's a there's a thing. I don't know. It's it's complicated though. Well, I'm on a mission lately to destigmatize inanimate things because I believe as the church we stigmatize things like money. I think we say I want to destigmatize being wealth because I want to be super wealthy. <laughs> so the first mission is make it okay to be super wealthy. <laughs> Please then send, get super wealthy. I would like to thank all of you for supporting us on this podcast. Um 
The I went to Reverend Lovejoy again. Um, Reverend Lovejoy, not a sponsor. The the like for example, and I don't want to get into anything into anything political. Oh my gosh! But so I won't. I want to use other examples because I thought of a political example, but it would freak everybody. Let's out. say there's a really really rich guy who let's say <laughs> runs for office. <laughs> Is that what you were gonna? No, no. I was gonna. I was gonna actually talk about guns. Let's call him Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, like use alcohol for example. You know, alcohol is a big issue among fundamentalist Christians yeah. in the way you and I were raised. Especially, uh, we had alcoholics in our family, and you're taught, a, you know, a very specific message. Yeah. My parents didn't like harp on that message. It was just a. It was just in the culture. It was in the culture, you know, mm-hmm. and and the the bottom line is there's there's like nothing inherently evil or inherently good about a drop of alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a thing, you know. Uh, same kind of thing with with a, a knife. So I'm gonna tell you a story, Johnny. So I'm going. Did I tell you the other day? Did I already said this in the podcast. I'm not no, sure. I've I gone cross eyed. I don't know what day it is. I want to hear this. Alcohol is like a knife. Analogy that's coming down a knife is not a good thing or a bad thing. It's right. what you do with it yeah. that that is is good or bad or your intentions of it. And so, by the way, I've lost so many pocket knives going through TSA, so many, because I have a backpack that I carry every day, and I often have a pocket knife in it. And so I'll get through security. Now I'm TSA pre-check, so I'll go right through thinking I'm flying through, and they'll find one in mm-hmm. some compartment that I did not realize it was in. This is like a huge Rambo knife, though, right? No, like a, big, a pocket knife. Sawed blade. <laughs> With the matches and the handle. Yeah, anyway. the compass on the yeah. end of the thing. Yep. Um, and I got one of those, those exploding arrows, too. But anyway. I think it'd be cool to be in the Swiss Army, don't you think? <laughs> to be ready for everything, wouldn't you? <laughs> like, we're in the woods. This, these, you know, this whole army's coming against us. Who's got a corkscrew? <laughs> Oh, Johnson, no. get over here. It wouldn't be it's supposed to be a Swiss guy. Florentson. <laughs> Florence. I don't know. Uh, Lieutenant. Anyway, that's British, sorry. Yeah. Um and so anywho, I go to I go. You're mad at them though because you no, forgot to take no, the knife out of your bag. No, I don't need you. You can't have a knife on the plane. To tell you me. This. I don't need you to tell me what I'm thinking. Okay. I will tell you if you'll okay. give me time. Okay. So I get through and sure enough they they flag me and pull me over to the side. I'm like, guys, I can't think. I mean, I went through everything. Yeah. And they find a knife that had dropped into some little extra compartment that I didn't know was in there. I'm like, Dang you know it. who has those compartments? Serial killers. Well, I suppose, <laughs> but it, you know, I was like, well, and I always try to give it to the guy who found it. I'm like, look, bro. everybody who ever tried to sneak something through TSA says something like, "It must have been in a compartment. <laughs> it slid into. I didn't know it was loaded, etc." <laughs> <laughs> well, so I said, you know, and the guy, well, we can't keep it, sir. And they're gonna, yeah, right. So I let them have it, <clears throat> and they don't keep you it. You can mail it. You can mail it back to yourself. Yeah, they for a. Then I got to get out of line and go over to the mail thing, Johnny. I got places to be. I got to. How, how expensive are these pockets? Like ten bucks, fifteen bucks. So okay. <clears throat> anyway, so then I get there. We do the conference, and we're coming home. And this time, yeah, this time. And what's funny is I'm the only one with TSA pre-check, and the rest of the staff that's coming home with us don't have it. And so I'm a real. Here's the question: You and I have done this before. I got TSA pre-check. We fly together, and like, does Johnny go through the line with me and wait among the peasants? You know, right. in the long cattle call. Or do you go on through the expedited TSA pre-check Every and I'll time. see the other side? So yeah. absolutely. I was like, well, I paid for this. Yeah. What I told them, though, was, hey, I want to experiment and see. Because I've been to some places where it wasn't any better. You know, yeah. I want to see if this is one of those places. Well, I got through in like literally two minutes. And they waited like literally 30. So it, it was actually, I just knew I'd get through. But but the, but the best part was you planted your knife. The best part was, now I've already, I've, already, <laughs> <laughs> I've already flown from Nashville to Dallas, done, yeah. have done the entire trip, and I'm flying home. So now I know I have no knives. Yeah. Johnny, they flag me again, pull me over in my carry-on. Guess what's in my toiletry bag? Another pocket knife. That just goes to show you. You may think you know yourself, Johnny. You may think, no, there's no way. I literally thought I had not one knife, and I actually had two, and one of them made it through the first airport. Wow. And all the way back, and so I, I got caught with a knife coming and going. And that's a lot like alcohol, isn't it? 
<laughs> Isn't that just like our Lord? Yeah, I don't know. It's no, no, the whole point is, you know, I'm a guy, you, you, you found, there's a reason they don't lock me up when they find my pocket knife. Yeah. Because they can't really prove they had any intent to do anything wrong with it. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, and, and, and I think that we stigmatize money, as I was saying all that, just like we stigmatize alcohol or all kinds of things, that you can absolutely misuse it, but it's just a thing. Money's not good. Money's not bad. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. We know that. The Bible says that your love of money. So this obsession over money or you're putting trust in money yeah. is where things go. And, and, you know, you and I, we talk about it all the time because we share in our lives and, and where we are financially. And... I really do struggle uh, with – at this age of my life especially as I'm thinking about what is – you know, what about my future years, my end of life. We're in a moment right now uh, where my dad passed away last year yeah. and we're having to deal. My dad my dad ran a commercial lawn care business and there are – there's 35 years of just equipment. Dad was holding it all together with – duct tape in his mind like he's the only one who knew mm-hmm. how everything fit together he wouldn't you know necessarily buy something new he'd just continually fix that's it that's the up. toughest part too i agree with you that because i lost my parents at a young age and i lost an older brother who was an executive in the group home ministry that we ran right and it was complete chaos trying to sort out when they died because they both died kind of suddenly your dad, it was a longer road, and right. he had made some preparations for you. But it has made me think about like money as a thing to be to prepare the people around me, not just like, yeah. well, I'll end at zero, yeah. and then we'll just have they'll sort out whatever. But like not leaving debt for the next generation, not yeah. leaving whatever. And there's not going to be a next generation with us. We don't have kids, but I'm saying like. I don't want to, I want people to have to sort through things and have to send death certificates all over town to Visa because I owe twenty six thousand dollars to whatever. Uh, there's weird things like that people have to go through, and I want to make sure everybody knows kind of wh- what to do in my life. That and it's important to take care of people around you. So there's a there's a spectrum of, uh, and there's a line to where it's like there's a self care, and then there's a, a a line where it's like you know if you're beginning to hoard or put your trust in money. Um, or make it this like sink, you know, it's like building your house on the sand at some point, you know. No, absolutely. And Dave Ramsey's um, most recent book that I had read called Legacy Journey was about that very thing. It was about being a good steward in your lifetime, what it not what it does for you. He traces all these stories, and it's not about just wealth. It's about what it did to prepare future generations of your family to do things, whether in ministry yeah. or whether civically. That they just could not have done if they were having to to worry about the things and how you yeah. can. It, it, that sounds like such a it's a hard and, and he takes a lot of shots, you know, for those kinds of things. Um, it, so I always try to return to biblical viewpoints, you know, which you and I have a sordid past, both growing up in, um, you know, more of a charismatic tradition where the prosperity gospel was a big deal, and, and yeah, or at least it was something that we knew was around and we. We would end up saying things, even if you didn't say, I subscribe wholly to whatever this TV preacher says. You would never say that. Right. But you would catch yourself saying some buzzwords or some things that like – or equating uh, financial blessing. That was God's approval on what you were doing. Yeah. And so that's tied to the prosperity gospel in a way. like, uh, And that this is how God says things are good. It means that you – Win at business. I'll be honest with you. I don't really know that I'm completely rehabbed from that mindset. Yeah. In fact, I was speaking with uh, one of my former students, and he's a listener, and, and we're talking about his business, and he said the same thing. I still think that if I'm not in a in a good place, whatever that means with God, then I can't expect yeah. blessings in my business. And he's trying to break out of that mindset, but those patterns are, are deep ruts. They're, they're deep. Yeah. Deeply dug into the way that we think. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I may have talked about this before, but, you know, when Laura had her brain aneurysm when we were just kids, we were engaged. The th- I think that even all the years to come of ministry and maybe not having, you know, I, I'm ho- I hope I'm going to have more understanding of 20 years from now than I did then. So it's not that I have it now. But, you I mean, we were really struggling, Laura and I, with the things that young couples struggle with before they get married, you know, 
and I felt very unworthy and very distant, and she was on her deathbed. And I distinctly remember, maybe maybe it was one of the the first times that I think Jesus really demonstrated who he was to me, mm-hmm. um, was I've never, I never felt more unworthy. It was like a moment of, I really need Jesus, and there was a temptation to go, but you can't. You know who you've been. You know you're you know you're yeah. fake. You know you're struggling. You know you're not pure. You know you're not right in your mind. You know you're you know you're not holy. Whatever whatever you want to insert there. And I just had this this very it was like God blocked that for me. And I knew he was. Like I sensed his acceptance. Yeah. Like I sensed his help that I wasn't gonna be rejected. And it, you know, what was so sad is is I wasn't gonna be rejected anyway. Like it, it, there, it was never there. It was all in my mind. It was all a figment of my bad theology or my bad understanding of him, my lack of trusting in him to think that if I would have been in good standing and had whatever the moral level of purity or all those things that then yeah. – and, and in some ways today I'm really glad I didn't because I came very broken. I came very broken to ask him, like, God, I got nothing. Like, I can't offer you that I've been good at this or good at that, good at this. Like, either you help me or we die. Like, it, yeah. that, that's where it is. I'm, I'm dependent. And I've come to realize today that is the actual state of my being <laughs> today. It doesn't, re- it doesn't really matter. And, and that's that whole our, our righteousness. And, but when you, you go back to the financial thing, when you, we equate financial blessings uh, with God's approval and those two worlds – become intertwined and those two root systems grow together over time, it just produces in us this um, this sense either of overconfidence in the wrong things or a sense of unworthiness that we that is not necessary to feel, especially when you take a look at the Bible and really realize the stories of the people whom God was obviously working great things in their lives. And like I always think about Paul. I always think about he's at the end of his life. Here is the mouthpiece uh, of the New Testament. Yeah. And when he's writing the last letter we have record of in Second Timothy, he's writing to Timothy and he says a bunch of stuff that we just really glass right over, I believe. Or is it gloss right over? Gloss right? You gloss right over it. Uh, you, I don't know. I've got a glassy stare. I don't know. <laughs> you see through a gloss I don't really darkly. Do, I don't really do words. But he says to Timothy, Timothy uh, – this is just, I mean, this is the guy. I'm in jail. Bring me my books and my coat for the winter. Everybody's abandoned me, but X and X. Yeah. Come soon. I have nobody left, basically, but you and you guys. And you're thinking, if he was equating God's love for him or right. approval of his life or ministry by the state of his circumstances, then that dude, I mean, no doubt he was discouraged. But he was writing to Timothy some of the greatest things we've ever heard in Scripture. His faith was not connected to it in the same way I think, whether it be through prosperity gospel or the way we think of money today. He wasn't connecting God's blessings to his performance Yeah. for whatever reason. Maybe it's because he was a murderer. Maybe I don't know. Maybe he got that lesson early on and never did it. But I'd have been like, hey. And he did. We have the story of him saying, I have this thorn in my flesh, and he's expecting God to remove it. Maybe because he had become so confident in God's grace for him despite whatever was happening to him. But it's just fascinating to me that I still can't remove all that. I still, if we have a low month in the bank account, it's not that I'm wondering how I displease God. Yeah. It's that I'm – I think, in fact, the more I trust God, the more I, I have this feeling of God could let anything happen to me. It doesn't, it's not a matter of me trusting him or not. I'm grateful when he doesn't. You know, but there's lots of people better than me that God's allowed things to happen. The honor of suffering for him, you know, it's just, it changes your whole viewpoint. Yeah. I'm, I I don't know, man. I'm, uh, I'm still working through because you're shaped by those things you grow up around. And then I'm still kind of figuring that out. And, and now, uh, I have, uh, this career where I travel and I tell jokes and it's, there's a value assessed to me by certain people. And then you go, you go place to place and you go, well, where, where's my real value, though? Is my value on whether or not August is empty and nobody nobody hired me in August? So now is my value over? I'm sorry to interrupt you. There's a – those noises. Can you hear those uh, podcasts? I wonder listeners? if podcast listeners can what hear What if they those? can't hear them at all and we're just being – Right. It sounds like an elephant is dying – Somebody's moving tables in another part of the building. They're sliding them across a concrete floor. But I'm really, really sorry. I want to no, acknowledge what John, that was. You lost the whole. Do you still have it? 
No, I don't know. Really, don't know what you're saying. Well, no, I do. Okay. Well, there's a way to tie your value to career. That's a very American thing yeah. too. Maybe it's not just American, but it's a very uh, easy to just go. Okay, well, I'm doing well. This is my this is my value to the world. Even we get into it when we call we say something's a calling. Yeah. You know, we we spiritualize it, but now it's like, okay, well, I'm only as good. If you say, well, I'm called to preach, you're still only as good as your last sermon. You're only as good as your last attendance number. Yeah. And then we start to slip where our identity is wrapped up in these things. And then so, yeah, you think about successful. Oh, I think in entertainers, I think about like, what's your calendar look like? What's your bank account look like? What's? But to me, I, I have always had this thing in my mind of what's the number for me where it's enough even before I started making my own money and, and had a career in comedy, I was like, when's it going to be enough? And will I know when that it would have reached that number? And what am I going to do after that number? Yeah. And uh, that's something I'm still wrestling with. Like, okay, well, I give a lot away and I do things, but it's like, it's a hard thing. It's not even about, you know, it's such a strange thing you have to wrestle with. I think we're supposed to wrestle with it, though. I think we are. Um, I think a lot changed for me when I began to really consider now someone's just playing a drum or something above us but are, i don't know what's happening it's, it's okay. never happened so it's fine <clears throat> our listeners are right here with us john this is real world we live in a is real it? world no we um, really should have soundproofed this church better <laughs> who built this place <laughs> things really began changing for me when i stopped thinking of money as my own and i still struggle with that um but i'm i'm choosing to believe and then i'm i'm, I'm trying to not just agree with it but believe it that all of these things are actually gods. I mean, if you can desermonize that in your in your brain, and and really begin to consider yourself not an owner but a steward, a manager. I don't own this; I manage it. And so, if you, you know, if you go over to Walmart today, and you walk up to the manager and you say, "Hey, listen, man, you got power, you got cloud around here. Can you give me all the stuff off that shelf?" He'd say, "I mean, I got a lot of influence, but I don't own that stuff." <laughs> I got to ask the owner. I just manage it. Yeah, I can give you a discount, or I can manage, but I can't just go. And and it sounds a little bit like that we can't make our own financial decisions. I do believe as we're the kind of steward that we have the opportunity to give and to spend and to save and all those things, and we have biblical principles to to apply to that. Um, but you know, I had a friend who had a need the other day, and 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 you know, it was with some kids in another country, and. Just for whatever reason, it struck me, and the guy was like, well, y'all don't have to do that. And I was like, this seems like a great way to use God's money today. Like, This seems like what God would want his money used for mm-hmm. if we're going to help orphans and, and you know, we're going we're gonna to do those things. And it's never enough. That was my old school. My old school way of thinking was because I had to please God by my actions um, and I had to gain merit through my work, like you just said, yeah. then – how much is enough? And you just asked that question and I'll answer it for me. You know, I won't share some things, but you know, some, you know about me because being my best friend, there were times in life that I made some very extreme vows about giving Yeah, because I was so afraid of becoming, um, greedy or let's put it another way. I knew I was greedy. And if I could discipline myself through these, I'll make guarantees, I'll make boundaries around me that will keep that from my heart. Yeah. And I did a lot of good during those times, but God really began dealing with me on the fact of number one, I don't think I ever told you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're able to steward these things. You start thinking about the future of your family. That's not that's not evil for you to do that, for you to consider what your future is, especially if you still owe a house payment, other things. You're still yeah. my, you know, God's money is still not I'm not even even on it, you know. Um it doesn't mean you wait to give until you're even right. doing that. But and it, and I begin to become more free to realize that God's not looking at me with a a check mark system. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a form of pride too when you're like, well, oh, yeah. I'll be the, I'll be the humble guy. That, I'm the guy who gave 50% of everything I made away. It's just another, yeah. yeah. So that I didn't become prideful, I gave it away. Well, now I'm talking There's something that happened a few years ago where somebody gave a million dollars to something and then spent $400,000 on an ad campaign to sh- to make sure everybody knew that they'd given the million or something. I wow. can't, it was something a Hollywood reporter and I was fascinated by that. That's such a, that's such a very, it's a great spiritual concept, but I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're like you said, we're we're managing this thing. But you, it can become a form of pride. I remember there's a book about, about Rich Mullins uh, called "An Arrow Pointing Towards Heaven." It really uh, inspired me. I was, Rich Mullins was a hero of mine, and he, at some point in his life, 
moved to an Indian reservation and had like four guys around him. They all took basically a vow of poverty. They were going to live on like $24,000 a year each and everything else. And his, his music royalties went to like fund these foundations that he set up ministries that he knew about and foundations that he started. And I was inspired by that, but there was a conversation he had with one of those guys before all that happened where he was just, he would look down on people that had a lot of money. And, uh, this guy's like was really frank with him and said, Rich, you you take more pride in your poverty than most people do in their riches. You understand that and really kind of corrected him. He said, if you hate money so much, why don't you make a bunch of it and give it away? Mm-hmm. Like God gave you this gift uh, to make uh, music, but your music is marketable, and that can help people. But it can also help people financially because of the system we have set up. There's an industry in place. So people that want to just say, like, well, if I get messed up in this industry, it's going to corrupt me. Well, that's in your heart. I mean, some of that's you, you have to walk through this world uh, and get dirty sometimes and wash your feet at the end of the day. It's like, I don't know. I think you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater sometimes. There's a there's an ugliness that can come from money, and then there's so much use. that can. I think of it as a tool, sure. and I think of it as something that has side effects if I, if I pile it up. Uh, there's an old friend of my uh, uncle who used to say, money's like manure. If you pile it up, it stinks. But if you spread it around, you can do good with it. Yeah. You know, it's like fertilizer. So I think it's something to that. You know, that's a very simple, like, uh, I like it. I'm East, wait- Tennessee, East Tennessee way to say things. I'm waiting for a zinger. And then if you. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. Some people are full of it. No, I don't know. It's just, it's just like, I don't know. No, you know, it's a, it's funny to me, interesting to me when Paul talked about to Timothy, oddly enough, when he talked about riches, he said, remind rich people in this world. He didn't tell them to not have it. He just said in that particular passage, he said, remind rich people not to put trust in the uncertainty of worldly riches. Like, you know, if you have it, yeah, be generous and don't put trust in it because it's uncertain. Like, remember yeah, um, it's a very similar thing to you know. I was talking some other day about we talked about the alcohol thing. When <laughs> there was an argument that, and I, we talked about Welch's grape juice and all that before, <clears throat> but I'll make a point that will tie all this together. You just wait. This is going to be like a knife. It's going <laughs> to because the knife it's just like was a knife in you guys. the backpack. And money's like a knife. You can fold it right, and you can drink it like <laughs> alcohol. No, um, and so it literally. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says, I believe it's Corinthians. Mm-hmm. He says, when you come together for communion, you're not doing this right. You're not thinking it through because somebody, some people say that all the alcohol or all the grape juice and the wine in the Bible was non-alcoholic. And you're like, Paul says, hey, some of y'all are getting drunk, right. which completely debunks the idea that they weren't drinking yeah. alcoholic wine. Right. And some of them are literally getting drunk, Johnny, in church yeah. at communion. Right. Okay. So, so, and, and then also they're being gluttonous. He tells them, and you're eating all the food and leaving it for no one else. And what he, and it's really important here that we see what he doesn't say. What he doesn't say is, so stop serving alcoholic wine. Right. He did not say that. He says, start loving your brother well. But the purpose of all this, mm-hmm. the purpose of all this is not really about the thing. That may be a choice you choose to make, and I'm fine with that choice. You know what I'm saying? I don't mean you yeah. in particular, the emphatic you to everybody. Right. It may be the best choice for you. But don't put faith in what you do or don't do in terms of I can now ascribe good, evil to these inanimate things. Paul never told him not to do that. He said be a good steward of it. Steward it well out of the right heart, understanding the mercy and the grace given to you that you are distributing among your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's really what this whole life is about. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do it. You know, wait and be patient and share and be generous and enjoy one another's company, preferring one another over yourself. You know, same same thing with the rich. He doesn't tell the rich not to be rich. He yeah. tells them do not put trust in the riches. He could have said, get rid of it all. You know, yeah. and I know we think that's what Jesus told the rich young ruler, but I think that's a very specific He's context of Scripture. Yeah. That happened to be – I heard a guy say – it's funny. He said, one thing you lack – but then he told him to go do two things. Mm-hmm. One thing you lack. So he says, sell all your possessions. That's one thing. And then come and follow me. That's two. But the one thing he really lacked was coming and following me. The other thing was he was 
telling him what stood between him and the one thing he lacked. It right. happened to be these riches for him. And so it, you can't just, okay, everybody, we're going to make a prescription out of this. And now we all go sell all of our right. possessions. It's a trust, it's a trust thing. Right. Well, and in comedy, you know, people always say, like, what were your dreams? What were your dreams? And, and uh, you know, people say, I want to make it. Well, to me, making it was the first time that I didn't have to work a day job. I had, I had dates on the calendar, and I knew that I did not – I wasn't depending uh, on somebody else for my income. And I thought, well, on the horizon, there's other things. And I just wanted to – every time I would get another booking, it would be like, there's another – I can be a comedian until May. <laughs> you know, I would think of that. I would think right. – I don't have to go get a day job until after May, then a June date. I don't have to go. Okay, this is enough. Mm-hmm. And it was about freedom to me because I didn't want to go. It was freedom to keep doing the thing that I loved doing. And so I, that was my mindset. And so then if you look at money that way, though, it's like we're never going to have enough to where we don't depend on God. Right. And if that's your goal is to make enough to work, well, I can pay off my house. Then I won't have to ever worry about, you know, I can be secure. It's like it's such a false sense of security, not to say you shouldn't pay off your house. Mm-hmm. We're both working on that. Yep. But it's like that's the false sense of security if you think that, you know, there can't be a cancer scare or a auto accident or a whatever that can just completely change your whole situation. Or I think about comedy all the time, like how the world could change and – you know, the winds of this thing can change. And all of a sudden, like what I do has a different value in the world now. Yep. That happens all the time. Yep. Think about the people who made hay in radio and now it's podcasting or it's TV or whatever. And they were the big whatever or companies that held out and did not get websites because they were like, this Internet's a fad. Right. Like it, the world can change. And then you, if you have your trust in this thing or what you do, <laughs> it's scary. So I just think it's it, like you said, it's inert. It's a it's a thing that shows where your heart is. It's the Bible's clear about that. Yeah, that, that's good. That the Bible, that the money is a true, it, you can look at those receipts and say, my, this is where my heart is. It's a tag. Yeah. Right? It's following where your heart is. It's connected yeah. to it. You can follow it back. And I, I think that's that's great. So I'm going to go through your receipts right now. You want to see where my heart we is? Just Dude, my put... heart's at Cheddar's. <laughs> There's a lot of Cheddar's on there. <laughs> I can tell you, my heart was in that barbecue chicken platter oh. that I had today. I should have had the salad, but bro. Shaq, speaking of NBA, speaking of NBA and barbecue, that's what Shaq used to say when he was going to play another team with it because he was the most dominant center in his era. And he would just say, that's barbecue chicken. I'm talking about the other guy. <laughs> like I'm, I'm going to eat this guy like barbecue chicken. Wow. So that's what he would just say. He stopped even saying, I'm going to eat this guy like barbecue chicken. They would just say, what do you think of the matchup with such and such? He'd be like, barbecue chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you literally had today. They should call that the Shaq meal. Oh, my goodness. In his honor. Well, I'm growing as big as Shaq. Oh, come just on. Just give it time. I'm just like Shaq minus the talent yeah. and the notoriety. Size 22 but other, shoes. other than that. It's a size 22 shoe, It's bro. unbelievable. That's, All those barbecue chicken went straight to his feet. That's a big foot. Man. Oh, my gosh. It is. 22. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Hey, can I, can I plug a show? We're doing a show here at our home church. If you're listening and you're in the Nashville area, mm. uh, I've got a friend coming in from Canada. His name is Leland Clausen, amazing comedian. And the reason I thought about him with the Shaq thing is Leland has freakishly large hands. It's, it's, it's a lot of his material, too. Not a lot. But he has a lot of material about his hands being um, – wait do you see him. It's unbelievable. They just put a hand in his he face. He calls himself <laughs> the comedy mutant. He is a – his hands are freakishly large. Uh, and so anyway, he's coming in. He's a funny comic and uh, he's coming down from Canada June 2nd, Saturday, June 2nd, here at our home church. At the church at Pleasant Grove. Church at Pleasant Grove uh, in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. And uh, that show is going to be $10 tickets. You can get them on my website, johnnyw.com. I'd really appreciate it. If you're listening to this show and you want to help me out – uh, come to the show. I'm going to host the show, so I'll be doing some new jokes yeah. there. Uh, and I'm bringing another buddy. And there will be a lot of comedian friends in town that week for uh, a Comedy five Association minutes. conference. John's going to do five minutes. John, you should. It's not, it's if you, you've got a, you got three weeks. It's not time. When is going to be time? Have you heard my neurology joke? No. <laughs> it's a no-brainer. Anyway. Oh well, yeah, Please don't end on that. A- <laughs> I can't. It actually has a bigger setup than that. It is going to be a great show, and you really should come. Yeah. This would be a great opportunity, Johnny. We should think this through. Would this be time to do a podcast recording with a live audience? I don't know if we could pull it off. Like an hour before the show kind of thing? I don't know. I don't know. Who would listen? The live audience. Who's Let's vote on it. You guys, uh, at talk, <laughs> AB that pod. Or you can also 
You can also tweet us directly. Tweet us directly. Johnny W. Are you Johnny or underscore? Johnny underscore W. And I'm John, John underscore driver. driver. Um, yeah, and let us know. That would be great. That's a good idea. But John needs to do five minutes. Two mm. minutes. Mm. You will can you, ho- Will you coach me? Yes. Because It's going to be like the Footloose training scene. It's going to be amazing. We're going to be in a warehouse <laughs> swinging, from, <laughs> swinging from old poles. Oh, man. Uh, anyway... Yeah, you should. You guys should all come. It's going to be a great show. We're really excited. <sighs> it, it is, and uh, so please come to that. I know we have some listeners in the Nashville area, and uh, some of them are fans of my comedy. Some of them are not. But I'm going to be doing uh, probably 20 minutes in that show of, of new stuff, and I'd love to have you come out and support Leland too. He's coming down from way up north, oh, so uh, it's going to be fun. And there's only a few. We only I mean, that we only uh, have like 300 seats for that show, so we're expected to sell out. So yep, come down. Go check out tickets johnnyw.com. Otherwise, thank you guys for listening today. You can share the podcast. And uh, remember, if it if it made a difference for you, maybe it will for your friends. Let yeah. somebody know. Uh, the more you know. The more you know, Johnny. Uh, we're excited to be here with you. Always honored to get to share some conversation with you. And uh, we'll return to Bantertown next week here on Talk About That. This is Perseus Poku, host of the Sound Reasoning Ministry podcast. Learn how to share and defend your faith by listening to us weekly. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.